Welcome to The Logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This episode is supported by you, the listeners, through Patreon. Head over to thelogbookpodcast.com for more information. This time we learn about a unique program that allows customers to have all the benefits of an experimental aircraft without the lengthy build times. In uh, fall of 2012, I was getting ready to make an offer on a professionally built RV-7 that I know about. It's sitting idle. And I did a uh, search on barnstormers for RV-7s to check the prices. I thought I knew what I wanted to offer, but I was just doing one final check. And the only thing that came up was an ad for the Glass Air Aviation Sportsman 2 Plus 2 demonstrator. And I'd watched that airplane. I've known the Glass Air people since many years ago. And so I called up Harry DeLong, who's worked there for ages. I know him personally. And said, Harry, this is Byron. We visited for a bit. And I said, I saw the ad for the demonstrator. I have a couple questions. He said, well, Byron, I know what they are. And you're not going to like the answers. I said, well, what's the first question? He said, you want to know if it's experimental amateur built or experimental exhibition? I said, you're exactly right. The difference between these two certification types is mainly in the leniency of the regulations. Amateur-built experimentals are held up to more standards and must abide by stricter guidelines when being built, opposed to the exhibition-built aircrafts. And while building a plane under the exhibition requirements has less restrictions, exhibition experimentals are limited to where and when they can be flown, while amateur-built experimentals can operate almost like a fully certified airplane. He said, the answer is it's exhibition. He said, and you won't like that answer. And I said, right again, Harry. Been nice talking to you. He said, but wait, wait, wait. He said, I can make you a great deal. We've got a deal right now on a two weeks to taxi Sportsman 2 Plus 2, which is a very different airplane from an RV-7. But as I said, I've watched the Glass Air Aviation Company, and uh, I like the concept of the Sportsman 2 Plus 2. It's a very roomy, very comfortable high wing, great visibility, two huge comfortable seats in the front, and room for up to 300 pounds in the back, either baggage or seats. So anyway, I said, okay, send me an email, show me what it would cost. Well, he sent something right then. Had a spreadsheet on it, and we talked a little bit. And I said, okay, uh, let me think about this, and I'll get back with you. He said, well, don't wait too long, because the window of opportunity is really close for this two weeks of taxi build. So the next morning, I got up and called him back and said, well, let's change this feature to this and this feature to this other option, some instrumentation and stuff, and add some things and delete some things. I said, what's the cost? He gave it to me. I said, okay, I'll do that. I said, I can send you X amount of dollars today, but I have to move some money around to be able to send the rest of it. I said, when is it due? And he started laughing. He said, on our normal schedule, it was due several weeks ago. But I know you, and and, uh, we will keep the airplane until we're paid. So if you want to do it, come on up. And anyway, a week later, I arrived there with my son-in-law, who has always wanted to build a Sportsman 2 Plus 2. He's also a pilot. And uh, we got into the program. And uh, one of the things that Harry had said was that the difference between building one at home and building it in the two weeks to taxi program is the efficiency of the work. He said at home, even the best builders are less than 10% efficient, meaning you spend lots of time diddling around with stuff, rereading the instructions, scratching your head, thinking about it, going to get a cup of coffee, getting the right tools out, getting the parts laid out, looking at the instructions again, and finally doing something and wondering about it. And there, it's not that way at all. So anyway, Eric and I got there early. Uh, We arrived up there on a Sunday. 
Uh, went out, saw where the place was, and arrived there Monday morning at oh, 6.45 or so. And uh, had a cup of coffee with the guys there. I got the initial briefing, and by about five minutes past seven, I was doing the very first bill task. The way they do it is unbelievably organized. First, they have three identical rolling toolboxes. They all have all the tools you need except for a couple specialty tools like crimpers and, and uh, pneumatic squeezers and stuff like that and torque wrenches. Only one box has those things. But all the rest of them are color-coded and have three sets of identical tools because there's more than one airplane underway at any time in there. There's only one within the two weeks it's being built, but they have ones that have already been built that people are still doing things to or doing custom work or modifications. They also have a bulletin board there that shows every task that needs to be done to satisfy the FAA's requirement for building 51% of the airplane and also to actually build the airplane, not just for FAA, but to build the airplane. And they're in sequence. And it is my responsibility as a builder of record to do certain things and initial that I had completed each of those steps. And at the end of each day, you know exactly how far you are into, into the build program. I think at the first day we were right on. The end of the second day we were two or three hours ahead of schedule. You know, at the end of the fifth day we were a couple hours behind schedule. But you know exactly where you are. And the rest of the organization is that they have a set of instruction books that are not the big three-ring binders like you get if you order a kit. They have each task in an individual folder. And it's up there and the task is numbered like task 100, task 200. And... The task is also referenced on the checkoff list on the wall. And then you go over to another wall where they have some great big rolling shelves that have plastic bins, and one of them will say Task 100. And you pull that down, and everything you need to do, all the parts you need to have to complete that task are there. So like I say, at five minutes past seven, they had set up a folding table. They had the instruction book for task number one out there and the tools to do it laying there. Well, first task was to level the fuselage in a jig. And that's one of the great advantages of the two weeks to taxi. You're using factory jigs that are proven. They're right. You're not going to make errors. So the first thing we did was make a couple pieces to put on the side of the airplane, put a smart level on it, and level it up four and a half left and right and bolt it down in place in the jig on the floor. That sounds like a easy thing to do, and it is when you have their jig. If you're working at home, it's going to take a whole lot more time. Starting with the same piece of airplane, uh, you're going to have to attach something to the floor and do all the shimming and tight in place. And, and you, you probably still don't have anything as handy as what they have up there. So you see right away that everything is going to be very, very efficient. So then the next task might have been to build some control cables. So they had another table that they'd set up while I was doing the leveling. with instruction manual opened to the section on building the control cables swaging tool there and the fittings and everything, the cable cutters and all that stuff. And a jig, which is basically a two-by, the right length with a couple pins on it. So you swage one in, hook it on one pin, pull it down to the other, measure it, cut it, and swage it, and check it with a go-no-go -no -go gauge. I thought that was pretty neat. It's the first time I ever swaged anything. And I was wanting to look at it. I said, wait a minute, you got to come over here. we got something else for you to do. So, you know, at about 15 past, I was on to the third task. And uh, it stayed that way the whole time. The breaks were carefully scheduled, and people stopped for a break, and then you went right back to work. And uh, lunch is the same way. And we worked 10 hours a day for six days the first week. Since it was such a short schedule, they don't keep engines in stock. Uh, the engines come from Lycoming, and they had promised to ship it, but they were delayed by a week in actually getting there to the bill. So 
Normally you have the engine the first week, but the engine didn't come until the second week. So we had to change the sequence of some things to keep the progress moving. Uh, they're very good at it, though, and they knew what we needed to do to keep going, and we did. And uh, the engine came in the second week, and we got it uh, mounted, the propeller on and everything. And uh, the plane was, by the second Friday, still working 10-hour days, the plane was ready to start the engine. So we opened the door. This is in the Pacific Northwest in November. And it was, you know, mist and rain all the time we were there, just about. Uh, but we rolled it out in a light drizzle and kind of chilly, probably 45 degrees, and uh, had already primed it inside, primed the oil pump. Got in and, and uh, started right up. It's a brand new factory YO360, which is a non-certified parallel valve, 180 horse IO360. And uh, everything looked good on it, so we took some pictures, smiled, and rolled it back inside. We took that Saturday off. Eric, my son-in-law, flew home because he had to go back to work. But then Monday was back out there, and I guess uh, probably finished some baffling around the engine and a little bit of fitting up of stuff inside the cowling and tying a few more things down, fitting the cowling back on and then taking it back off again, and a few other little things inside the cockpit, some seats and seat belt attachments, things like that. So spent Monday doing that. Tuesday morning, I spent opening up the entire airplane, all the inspection plates and everything, taking the seats out and everything, because Tuesday afternoon the DAR came, uh, inspected the airplane, signed it off, Bermuda Airworthy Certificate, gave me a uh, test area 40 hours because it's a non-certified engine, even though it's a factory new engine. I got 40 hours and uh, gave me a test area, 100-mile radius of the airport, as long as I didn't go into Canada, which is not 100 miles north over there. It's closer than that, which is very nice. I was afraid it was going to be a real small area, but that was a nice, big, comfortable area. Got it signed off late on Tuesday afternoon, maybe 4.30. That time of year, it gets dark up there that far north in the wintertime by 4.30. So the next day, came in and, and spent almost the entire day getting everything put back together, put in, checked and double-checked and going around one more time and checking had torque seal on everything. Got ready to fly and was ready to fly that afternoon, late afternoon, but the weather was too bad. So I went back in the following day and made the first flight. Wasn't very good conditions, but was able to get a flight in anyway and prove that the airplane did fly. First thing that the bill supervisor wanted to know, taxied in, he said, how much aileron trim did you have to crank into it? And I said, quite a bit, Ben, quite a bit. And his eyes got big. I said, move the trailing edge of it at least an eighth of an inch. So, so he was real pleased with that because you can't adjust the uh, twist in the wing once it's built. Either you build it straight or it's not. And uh, if you look at it now with typical loading in an airplane, you, you get almost zero movement of the roll trim to fly wings levels. So it's worked real good. Anyway, uh, that weekend, weather was terrible. But in the following two weeks, I, I guess I got an hour and a half on it on the first two flights. In the following two weeks, I flew off the remainder of 40 hours, did most of it in seven days. And it wasn't just flying in circles. It was doing things and checking climb rates, and turn and stall speeds. The stall speed was dead on. Uh, top speed was what I expected it to be with that engine. Many of these airplanes, in fact, the majority, are built with a 210 horsepower Lycoming engine. Mine's 180. Plus, I put a muffler on it. I already have a loud airplane out there in the hangar. So I put a muffler on this one. And so I gave up some horsepower there versus the others. So the cruise is a little bit slower. But top speed at low level, everything full forward is 147 knots. So anyway, finished all that. And that was uh, in November. Came home. I sat down with the painter who's a, a young fella on that airport right there. It's not part of the two weeks to taxi. But it's a guy who works with the two weeks to taxi. And I left the airplane there. And it was taken over to the paint shop, disassembled, painted, reassembled, and brought back. And then my daughter and I flew out there commercially to bring it home in late January. 
Glassair's headquarters is in Arlington, Washington State, about an hour north from Seattle. Our storyteller needs to fly his new sportsman to his home in central Florida. That's a 47-hour drive in the most direct route, and following VFR flight rules and his safety guidelines makes this a really long trip and a pretty daring maiden voyage for his airplane. I'd purchased a stack of paper charts from the FAA and had a route plan on to come down through the Central Valley of Oregon and uh, down past uh, Mount Shasta in Northeast California and on down to Bakersfield, and, uh, across by El Paso and across Texas and Louisiana and home. Had stops lined up with people I know and some friends gave me some contacts in those places, you know, I said, you get here, call these folks, you know. Uh, we got there, though, and it was typical Northwest wintertime weather meaning the weather was miserable for somebody from this part of the country. Very seldom did you ever see the sun, very dense fog every morning, sunrise late, sunset early because you're so far north in the wintertime. And the weather going south, someplace south of Seattle, every day for seven days in a row, the forecast was icing from surface to 18,000 feet. So needless to say, we didn't go that way. And my daughter was getting antsy to come home, so was I. And some of the guys there kept telling me, I'll go east across the mountains. I said, you'll really enjoy it. So we finally did. I decided to go east across the mountains. And uh, the first day, we weren't able to leave until probably 1 o'clock or 1.30 in the afternoon, which meant we just had a couple hours flying time because the sun sets so early there. And in the mountains, it starts getting dark even well before official sunset. But we made it down to Baker City, Oregon, northeast corner of Oregon, and... Uh, had a really nice stay there. The folks there were great. Uh, the next morning, again, heavy fog, but it finally cleared up. The forecast was to be clearing, you know, ground, low, low overcast, but clearing by, by noon. And we were going to head down by Boise and come across by Salt Lake City. So uh, making the mistake of believing in the forecast, we launched and uh, headed down that way and found a solid overcast over the valley that goes down to Boise. By, by pilot reports and, and meteorological reports. It's a couple thousand feet thick, and down under it was a quarter mile, 100-foot ceilings. So we elected not to go that way. We, we orbited at minimum power for about an hour and finally decided to go east across the mountain range. Now, the hesitancy about going east was that we had some survival gear with us, but didn't have tents and stuff like that. But we did have some survival gear. But my criteria for my first crossing ever the Rockies in the wintertime, was that I wanted to be able, if I had an engine failure at any point or any difficulty, particularly in a new airplane, I wanted to be able to glide either to a well-traveled roadway or an airport. Not necessarily for saving the airplane, but uh, so we wouldn't go from a bad situation to a horrible survival situation. So that's what we did. And since we headed east, I didn't have paper charts. And the FBOs up there didn't have paper charts to cover a route east either. They were all out. She downloaded some some uh, electronic charts. And uh, she found a route across the mountains to the east of us there that took us away from the valley and the thick overcast where there were some forestry service airports, grass strips along the way. So that met our minimum criteria for being able to get down and not being a terrible survival situation. So we went that way and went around and, and had a nice flight down. And some people had recommended a particular airport to us. And we went to that airport and we didn't land. We called them to find out if they had a courtesy car and got no response. So we orbited for a minute, thought, you know, somebody may be out in the hangar or out on the line or something. Orbited for a few minutes, called again and got no response. And I got a call from another airport, from Logan, which was I don't know, 30 miles south of us there, 20, 30 miles. And the guy said, hey, we got courtesy cars down here and, and uh, plenty of places to hang our airplane overnight. Come on down. So we went south and landed 
uh, got on the ground just as the sky was completely brilliant red from the sunset. And as we taxied in, we saw snow between 18 and 24 inches thick on the side of the taxiway. Fortunately, they had just cleaned the taxiways for us and uh, had another great FBO there. Put the airplane in a hangar. We ended up staying there two days. We got up the next morning, and they had what the locals called freezing fog. I grew up in Georgia, lived in the southeast all my life. I'd never met freezing fog. Freezing fog is fog where the moisture crystals are frozen, but they're still suspended in the air. And everything it touches, it starts building up snow or ice on it. Really pretty stuff to see. But that entire day, the, the, the ceiling never got above 100 feet. And the visibility, the maximum it got to was about a quarter of a mile. And uh, we went out to the airport. It was 16 degrees. We'd gotten in so late the night before that we hadn't uh, serviced the airplane. So we had to roll it out of hangar to service the airplane. It took them about 45 minutes just to get the fuel truck to start up. They had to carry out a warm battery or something to get it to go. Came down, we filled it up, got everything ready to go, checked it all out, and put it back in the hangar, which was very nice because otherwise the next day would have been very difficult. But the next day we went out there and, and had freezing fog again, but it wasn't as thick and it was forecasted to lift. So we got ready to go and we were sitting there watching and we knew that where we were going was unlimited visibility, no ceiling. I mean, just beautiful, clear skies. Uh, we knew that from the, from the weather reports. And we got ready to go. We saw a little hole opening up over about half the runway. Nice long runway there. So we got an airplane. It was six degrees Fahrenheit. Got in the airplane, started up. It started just fine because it had been inside. Went out and took off, stayed in that hole, and climbed up, circled up above it. And we got up above it. We could see the fog in this big valley. But to the east where we wanted to go, everything was just beautiful and clear. So we climbed on up and headed east through a cut in the mountains. And uh, that's where we got our, our, our nicest surprise at whole trip. We picked up a 60-knot tailwind. So we continued climbing. As we climbed higher, the, the wind velocity was lower. But we flew from uh, Logan, Utah, which is just north of Salt Lake City, all the way to Cheyenne, Wyoming, where we turned southeast. And uh, that entire way, we had a tailwind between 46 and 48 knots. So that was really neat. And uh, just beautiful visibility, just clear as it could be. Every place we stopped, we, we had, uh, had, had great experiences. I don't know if it's because of home built, but I, I think it's just because there are a lot of good people in aviation out there. But uh, we were headed down, and we wanted to stop in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, uh, to visit one of my wife's relatives, and we did. And again, the people at Bartlesville were really great to deal with. Phillips Aviation there. Had a good time visiting with relative. Uh, every place we went, we had loaner cars that were good. The next day, we went out to the airport, and uh, again, bad weather in the morning, southeast of us, solid IFR. I'm a VFR pilot. So we sat until probably 12.30 in the afternoon, Finally got in the airplane, headed southeast, flew for 45 minutes, landed, waited for weather to clear some more, got flew some more. And uh, we ended up in Vicksburg Regional Airport, which is not in Vicksburg, Mississippi. It's actually across the river in Louisiana. But uh, again, uh, great accommodations and uh, had a real nice, pleasant evening. Anyway, the next day we left out of there and uh, made it home here to Love's Landing. I'd wanted to come across the Florida Panhandle right on the coastline uh, through the VFR corridor just on the south side of Eglin Air Force Base and across there uh, just to see it from the air, been there on the ground. But again, the weather to the southeast of us was, was VFR, rain all the way down. So we ended up 
going east, went across Meridian, where we had actually the most traffic of any place on the entire trip. One of the few places where flight following was pretty busy, giving us traffic advisories, and uh, flew east all the way to uh, just about the Georgia border and came down through the southwest corner of Georgia and down here to Love's Landing. We got here, spent the night here. Uh, we had a couple hundred pounds of baggage in the back for this trip. You know, I had some oil. We had two suitcases. I had all the paperwork that comes with the airplane from the bill, which is quite heavy. All the instructions, you know. Uh, I had some spare pieces, some, some metal pieces and stuff. So we had a lot of weight in the back of the airplane, but it just flew great the whole way. I was really, really pleased with the performance of the airplane and, and just had a really, really nice trip. Visibility out of that airplane is so good. It's 44 inches wide at the hips and 46 at the shoulders. The, the windows bow out a little bit. Unlike all the Cessnas I've flown, I don't have to duck my head to look out to the left or right. So just, just all in all, a real comfortable airplane. The day when we took off that it was six degrees, we had jackets and gloves on. By the time we headed out on our trip, the gloves were gone, the jackets were open, and it was very, very comfortable in the airplane. It actually warmed up as we climbed. Most of the way, we had about 20 degree Fahrenheit outside air temperature, even though it was six degrees on the ground. So just a super flight. Uh, so we spent the night here, got up the next day. My daughter lives in St. Petersburg. Her husband works downtown St. Pete, literally across the street from Albert Whitted Airport. So I flew down there. My wife was down there with them. And uh, they came out to the airport and met me, and we all had a good picture-taking session. We flew the airplane home and put it away, and I've been enjoying it ever since. I have no regrets about selecting that airplane. RV-7 is a very fine airplane. I like the RV series, but I'm, I'm really glad that I elected to go with the Glass Air Aviation Two Weeks to Taxi program. Byron Covey lives in Love's Landing and of course still enjoys his Glass Air Sportsman today. Byron's plane took about two and a half weeks to fully finish and a few more weeks for it to be painted and to plan for the flight home. The interesting thing about the two weeks to taxi program is that people who chose to build the plane on their own time with comparable features reported that there wasn't much of a cost savings for if they had completed the plane in the two weeks with Glass Air. The major difference being, of course, the build time, which for some of these customers it was several years of on and off work on their kits. Everyone is different, and some people enjoy the long build process, but in this case, Byron wanted a plane to immediately fly and get a lot of use out of, which is why the two weeks to taxi program was perfect for him. You can check out pictures of Byron and the sportsman he built, along with more information about the two weeks to taxi program by going to the article at thelogbookpodcast.com. This episode was supported directly by your donations. If you enjoy the show, you can support its production by becoming a patron. Through Patreon, you set a donation level that is given every time a new episode is released, and you can always set a monthly limit so you don't go over your budget. Depending on the amount donated, you are granted access to different rewards that are as simple as hearing a sneak preview to the next episode, all the way up to exclusive content that didn't make it into the show. Any amount is helpful, and the more that it's donated, the more the show can improve. Head over to our website, thelogbookpodcast.com, and click on the Patreon banner at the side of the page to start supporting. Also, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps bring awareness to the logbook. If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of the logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in the logbook.